Coming up on Philosophy Talk, how does culture shape our ways of thinking and acting? I'll see what you've done with your filthy Eastern ways. Are Western ways of thinking and acting fundamentally different from Eastern ways? How do we know you're not just as filthy when you've lulled us with your filthy Eastern ways? Do Western and Eastern cultures construe the self differently? culturally transcendent, universal notion of the self, or is the very idea of self culturally bound and culturally variable? Our guest is noted cultural psychologist Hazel Marcus. Culture, self, and action, coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, different cultures, different selves. We're going to discuss the idea that forms the basis of what's called cultural psychology. The idea that people in different cultures have different selves. Frankly, Ken, I find that idea a bit obscure. That, that surprises me. You've written so much about personal identity and the self yourself. I'd expect you'd have a clear vision of what cultural psychologists are talking about. They have lots of data, cool data, that showing, for example, that Asian selves and American selves are quite different. So what, what's your problem? Well, I don't know if I can't see the forest because I'm staring at the trees or I can't see the trees because I'm staring at the forest. But I, I'll tell you what we can do, Ken. I'll make some distinctions that I found useful in thinking about the self, and then you can use my vocabulary to explain to me what in the world cultural psychologists are driving at. Okay, that sounds like a plan. Let's go. All right, for starters, what is a self? I have a very simple view. My view is a self is just a person, a human being with the normal capacities of thought, memory, reason, and the like. The phrase myself is like the phrase my neighbor. My neighbor is just an ordinary person, thought of as the person who lives next to me. Suppose I say, Obama doesn't like drama kings or queens and expects everyone in his office, his secretary, his national security advisor, and himself to remain cool and rational. When I say himself, I'm just referring to Obama by the relation he has to the person I'm talking about, namely identity. Nothing mysterious about the self. John, I have to say, that's a remarkably thin theory of what selves are. And it's rather unphilosophical, you surprise me. I mean, philosophers think of the self as some sort of inner principle of some sort, don't they? I mean, don't we? Be true to yourself, we say. You think that's all nonsense? Well, no, but I think it's much better thought of as talk about our concepts of ourselves. We each have a very important concept or idea, the one we express with the word I. It's the way we think of ourselves, the people we are. It's where we store all the information we get in these special ways, like when we know what we're thinking and we know our reasons for doing things. My concept of myself has a quite special structure, different from my concept of even my closest friends, like you. But it seems to me in this respect it's going to be the same with Japanese and Chinese and, uh, to take an extreme case, 
people like you from Ohio. Well, John, okay, uh, okay, then I would say, using your vocabulary, here's what I'd say to you. Cultural psychologists are thinking about the structure of those special concepts we each have of ourselves. And they think that those, the stru- those structures varying in, vary in interesting ways across cultures. C- can't you buy into that idea? Well, in theory, it makes sense. But I'm still skeptical. It seems to me that we all have ideas of ourselves with a very similar structure, a universal structure. For example, we all think that we have bodies that we can control in ways that no one else can, just by deciding and willing what to do. We all think that we have special ways, our senses, of finding out what's going on around those bodies. Am I to believe that people in other cultures don't share this basic structure in thinking about themselves? No, no, nobody's asking you to believe that. But, but I do think you're seeing a few philosophical trees and missing a vast psychological forest. Tell me more, oh deep thinker. Well, well, consider, first of all, the things that we find most important about ourselves, the ways we can't even imagine being different. I mean, you're from Nebraska. D- don't you see that as an important, even essential characteristic of yourself? Uh, no. I, I mean, I was, I was thinking of myself as not being in Nebraska from the day I was old enough to think. I left Nebraska when I was young, almost at the first opportunity. It didn't change me in any significant way. It just put me, the real me, in a different situation with different opportunities to express you know, myself. John, John, that's a pretty common attitude for, for Americans. We pick up and move at the drop of a hat. But cultural psychologists will tell you that that's pretty unusual. Far, far more common, especially, say, in Asia, is that who one is, one's self-concept in your vocabulary, is rooted in one's home, one's family, one's ancestors. Moving across a country or across the world, that's hard to imagine. And people have done it, lots of people have done it, but it's always been traumatic in a way. Well, I have a friend, Chun Tsutsia, who lives in Tokyo, and, and, and maybe you have a point. He commutes three hours every day across the whole of Tokyo to his job. He won't move closer to the university where he works, even though the housing is less expensive there, because that would mean moving away from his father and his mother and his brothers, all of whom live in a neighborhood where his family has lived for generations. I've always thought that was completely weird. But John, you're just now you're just spouting the the you know the American individualism. But that's a cultural bound way of thinking about the self, and that's no more valid than other ways of thinking about the self. Oh, I think it's completely valid. It's my duty to share it with the rest of the world. But anyway, to help us sort this out. We've got Hazel Marcus, a cultural psychologist from Stanford who will be joining us in a minute. And so will our listeners. And the number to call is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Nancy Mullane, looks into the issue of the self and others. She files this report. We've all seen it, or maybe even done it. You know, caring for someone when they need help. Lending money, letting a friend sleep on the couch, maybe just giving someone a ride. But what if it means self-sacrifice? What's the stronger motivation, self-interest or social concern and sympathy? Well, I mean, there's, there's people on both sides of the spectrum. And I think more so people do stuff for themselves. Well, I'm a social worker and I think human beings are really connected people and that as a human I would hope that somebody would help me when I was in need and because of that I'm also always helping other people. It's sort of like building the social capital between the people too. So The reason I do those type of things is because I think of how I would feel if I was in that person's position. There's something probably 
biological that we could point to that ultimately drives people to do what they do rather than some sort of moral drive, you know? So what does motivate people to care about others? Are there biological explanations? One is the deep evolutionary answer uh, that has to do with the origins of human goodness. Dacher Keltner is professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and author of the book Born to be Good. We are an ultra-social species and we had this great selection pressure which is to take care of profoundly vulnerable offspring. And what that built into us is uh, an instinct to care. In addition to an instinct to care about others, scientists have found there's a physiological basis for compassion. Keltner says these scientists have discovered that there are regions in our brains that help us respond to the suffering of others. We have these emotions like compassion and empathy that involve specific patterns of neural activity in the brain, specific regions of our nervous system, and those emotional reactions are proximal causes of altruistic behavior, of volunteering, of sacrifice in romantic relationships, of caretaking in communities. Not only does that brain-to-nerve stimulus create positive social behavior, Keltner says at the neurological level, it triggers the release of dopamine, which brings about feelings of warmth, calmness, and intimacy, a kind of payoff. So at the, at the level of the brain, when I give, I derive a secondary pleasure, which is pretty remarkable. The brain is saying, this is pleasurable to sacrifice for you. So if we're naturally hardwired to care about others, what role does nurture play in making people more socially sympathetic? It begins with this appreciation that all humans suffer and that suffering is part of life. And the minute that you start to realize that people close to you suffer, they die, they suffer disease, they suffer economic hardship, that suddenly turns on this empathy switch or compassion switch and makes you more altruistic. According to Keltner, new data shows compassion is the key to a long, healthy marriage, helps you beat certain diseases, and makes you live a long life. Our current economic crisis offers a historic opportunity to redefine our values. I hope this crisis reorients us away from this self-interested model of human nature, which is part of who we are, but it's been privileged the past 25 years, to caring and compassion, which are also part of our human nature, but have been underdeveloped as a culture. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Nancy Mullane. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.